Hey, uh, I'm excited to be here. I was hiding out in the back. I'm, I've been feeling a little bit off. Harrison was sick last night, and, and uh, so those of you that like greeted me and shook your hand, you're thinking, <laughs> right? Uh, but I've been washing my hands and uh, trying to keep my distance for the most part from most of you guys. Um, but I'm going to pray in a few minutes, and I'm going to ask for a little bit of extra help. And uh, part of the reason why is I just feel a little, a little weak and a little um, in need. Um, this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to start into kind of a short series on a few of the basics. We're going to look at the Bible this morning. Uh, we're going to look at um, we're going to look at uh, sin and salvation and God. So we're going to look over the next four weeks. We're going to look at these categories that I think are just kind of taken for granted for the most part. And as a church that's nearly two years old, as our campus is uh, coming up on the two-year mark um, in the next year. It's something that I feel like is important because we've never actually done this. We've never just kind of landed and said, here's what we think about these different things. So this morning, I want to take some time and lead you into a passage that speaks into the Bible and what that's all about and how we as a church ought to think about the Bible and then put it to use. Now, uh, the truth be told, I didn't always love the Bible. Uh, I grew up in a Christian household, grew up... um, going to church. I actually attended Central all in my upbringing, 26 years or so now, and uh, have been around the Bible a lot, but it was actually um, during a season of life, a lot of different things were happening for me, but I fell deeply in love with the Bible, and I fell in love with the fact that God does speak to us, and that He does communicate to us, and that through, through His Word, He gives us everything that we need. And uh, part of that, I think, was listening to a preacher who is, is going to do what, he does what I'm going to try to do this morning, and that's simply to let the word um, speak. And so when I heard preaching like that, it, it, with a lot of other things, it just kind of made me fall in love with it. I say that because some of you are in here this morning, and you know that the Bible's important, but maybe you don't love it. And I just want to give you permission to, to, to be okay with that. That a lot of us come in here and we maybe go, yeah, it's a church. I would expect the Bible to be an important feature, but maybe you haven't fallen in love with it yet. And I will say this, God takes us on this journey, and I do think his desire for each one of us is that we would recognize the beauty of his word and that we would fall in love with it, and then we would become people of that word. So go ahead and grab a Bible if you can. We've got some in baskets under the chairs down by your feet. And turn with me to page 964 in the Bibles that we have here. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, page 964. So I will read the text and then I'm going to pray. And uh, part of, you know, not only being sick, but I was also thinking, ordinarily I like to spend some time preparing and studying and with Christmas Eve being on Monday and uh, extra stuff going on this week with, with family and, and, uh, and all of that. I feel like everything that I wanted to get done was condensed into a small uh, little window of time. So I'm believing that if I pray, God will do more with my little amount of preparation than I could have done if I had two more days of work. And so we'll read it, and then we'll pray in that direction and trust that God is faithful and good. So we're looking at holding on to the word in troubling times. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, 
conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with all kinds of sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They are men of depraved, depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Lord, right now we ask for your supernatural work. Would you, by your Spirit, God, take words on a page and as we read and listen, could we hear your voice today? And we pray, God, that by your Spirit, you would accomplish exactly what you want to do here in our faith community, that we would be people who are transformed on the spot because you're here and you're doing your work and we trust in you. Lord, we pray that uh, you would use this time and that you would be honored. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we want to be a community of faith that loves the Bible and we want to be a community of faith that's able to be committed to the Bible, even if things are difficult. And so I wanted to bring in the context here, the first part of chapter 3, because I think it helps us to realize that the stakes are very high, that we live in troubling times, and so we need to be the kind of people who commit ourselves to listening to God's Word and obeying it at every point. And so we see two things here in the text. We see the troubling times described in verses 1 to 9. And then we see Paul encouraging Timothy to hold fast to that word of truth. And we see that in verses 10 through 17. So the troubling times we see in verses 1 to 9, it says, But mark this, there will be, trouble, there will be terrible times in the last days. He's saying to, Paul is saying to this younger protege, Timothy, he's saying, Mark this, it is going to be pretty treacherous. It is going to be a season that is stressful, that is hard and challenging that Timothy, you're going to be doing ministry in a setting where there's hostility toward you. It's going to be a setting where it's going to be difficult. And what you need to be aware of is that that is the truth, but you have to hold firmly to this word of truth. And so he's saying, mark this, there will be terrible times in these last days. Now, we could hear the last days and think, oh, it must be talking about some future event, you know, kind of the, the end of days kind of thing. And we could think, yeah, it's probably going to be pretty gruesome at that point. Everyone's going to turn away from God. But the way that the, the Bible actually uses that phrase is pretty much from the point when Jesus was there and then ascended to glory until he returns. The New Testament kind of uses that whole time frame as the last days. And so when Paul is saying this, he's saying, mark this, right now it's going to be really hard for you. Your ministry is going to be very hard. 
Now that point is made clear for us when he begins to tell him that some of the challenges that he will face, he, he's describing them in the present tense. He's going, you're going to experience teachers like this. You're going to experience things like this, and it's going to be very challenging. So for us, we need to be aware that we live in this season where it's going to be challenging. And what Timothy faced in Ephesus in this setting here, we also face today. We are living in a season where there is opposition to the truth where there is this tendency to move away from God and become self-centered and self-oriented and to not listen to what God has to say. And so we as a faith community need to kind of bulk ourselves up and go, look, we're going to be the kind of place where truth is cherished and where we hold firmly to it, even if that puts us out of step with everyone else. So mark this, there will be terrible times in the last day. Then he tells us, here's what it's going to look like. And it is pretty grim. There's 18-ish examples that he gives here in verses 2 to 4. Let's look at it. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What What do we see here? Obviously, this is a pretty grim and dismal picture. And he's saying, this is what it's going to be like. This is typical of these last days. This is the feature that you're going to find. And and he's just giving this catalog then of of what it's going to be like to live in a season like we live in. Now, I'm not going to go through and point out all of the details of the list. Some of you would feel like I'm picking on you. All of us struggle in some way with these items. But what we're seeing here is that when we turn away from truth, this kind of stuff shows up. Let me give you three different things from this list. The first thing that I notice is that it has a lot to do with love. That if you're looking at the list, you recognize that it's saying the people during this time will have their love misguided. They will love something, it just won't be the appropriate thing. We should be lovers of God, lovers of people, lovers of ourselves in that order. But during this season, here's what we do, we invert it. And we make ourselves the most important thing in the world. And he's basically saying this love becomes oriented to oneself. And and really, that's what sin is. Instead of listening to God and obeying him at his word, what do we do? We make ourselves to be gods. And we try to determine for ourselves what we should be doing, what the outcome is going to be, and how to to manage and control our lives. D.A. Carson calls that the de-godding of God. We saw that right at the beginning of the Bible storyline that the humanity turns away from God and says, we could do away with you and we'll figure it out on our own. And we continue to do that even today. So it's misdirected love. It's love for self. Martin Luther, when he was commenting on the Ten Commandments, he put it like this. He said, look, notice this. People can't really break commandments two through 10 without already breaking the first commandment. When you stop loving God, all bets are off. If you break that first commandment, all the other ones are in jeopardy. If we will love God, that's an important thing. And we're, we're seeing here that during this season, what happens is we turn away from the love of God to the love of self and all hell breaks loose. So we see this misdirected love. That's one of the features of the list. We also see that our relationships get harmed. If you're looking at the list, notice how many of them have to do with interpersonal relationships. That there's this incivility, that we turn away from truth and all of a sudden our relationships become hostile. And we start to treat other people maliciously. We start to treat other people not as an object of our affection made in God's image, but as threats to us. 
And so we become hostile. We become disobedient to parents and ungrateful. We become slanderous. We do all these different things. We become brutal in our relationships. So to turn away from truth actually has a negative effect on our relationships. I want you to see that there. Another feature that you find in this list is that it reveals this lack of godliness. As Paul is writing this letter to a, to a church leader, he's saying what we need to have happen in our churches, this is a theme in both the letters that he writes, we need to make sure that people believe the truth and then their lives begin to exhibit that truth. We need to believe the truth, but it has to be displayed in our godliness. It has to show up in the way that we, we live out the faith commitments that we have. And he's pointing out in this list that if you turn away from truth, you don't have the godliness that's supposed to be there. It's not going to be beautiful or compelling. You can say all the right things, but if you turn away from truth and away from God, the, the quality of your relationships will go down and you will be lacking in that godliness. Now, if we're looking at this list, one of the temptations that you and I might make is to go, yeah, that sounds awful. Like, I don't want to hang out at a place like that. I don't want to deal with people like that. And I think I know where those people hang out. They're the sketchy people. They're not here this morning. They're somewhere else. But here's the surprise feature. He begins to describe that these aren't those outsiders who are getting it all wrong. He points out these are people in the faith community. Look at the next verse, verse 5. They have a form of godliness, but they're denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. He doesn't say, yeah, all those people out there, they've turned, we were living in terrible times. Everyone who's an unbeliever is just going their own way. He's saying, look, this is within the faith community. These are people who have the appearance of godliness, that they're doing certain things where you would look at them and you'd go, they're spiritual individuals. They're, they're doing spiritual things. They have this appearance of godliness, but what have they done? They've turned away from the true source of that power itself. This stuff is going on within the church, and we're going to see here in a minute that there are teachers who are leading people astray, and there are followers who are moving down this path as well. But that's why holding firmly to the word of truth is so important in the treacherous times, because the problems that we're going to face not only come from without, they also come from within. And we need to be the kind of place that can recognize we want to cherish and value truth no matter what. So he's saying they have this form of godliness, but they deny its power. He, he begins to describe their ministry in verse 6. They're the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I don't think he's denigrating women here. I don't think he's speaking poorly about women. I think he has specific people in mind. And he's realizing there are these teachers who have gotten into the homes of these unsuspecting women and have led them astray. And they have these unique situations going on that make them susceptible. And so he's describing this is what false teaching does. It gets in, it, it moves itself in on people in order to win them away from the truth. Now, I was thinking about it this week and I was, I was just wondering, man, how can we, I, I think a lot of us are probably unsuspecting. I'm going to talk here in a minute about false teaching, and I think that's just a category we don't bring up very often anymore. So a lot of Christians kind of navigate their experience without really categories that would help them recognize there's truth and there's something different. And he's saying that these women are susceptible, that they've been led astray by these false teachers, and, and I guess my concern is, as a church, are we doing enough to make sure that you're not susceptible? Over the last year, I've been reading about 
pastoral ministry kind of in the early ages of the church. And, and I was, I've been inspired by the things that they would do. They had all kinds of different practices to try to help their people be formed in the image of Christ. And I would love to onboard some of them, but listen, I can't just onboard a form from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago into our setting and go, I think this will work. They lived in a different context, in a different time, but my concern is what are we doing to help you grow in your understanding of the things of God? And here's my concern. Sunday's not enough. If you think that coming to church once a week or a couple times a month is sufficient to give you the categories that you would need to know what truth is and isn't, I, I just don't think that's realistic. We need more going on in our lives to help us understand truth, know what it is, and be able to identify something that is not truth. I think, you, I think we need to be in groups. I think we need to be having conversations with other people about spiritual things. I think we should be practicing spiritual disciplines at a personal level, that we're reading the scriptures. I think we should have discipleship relationships going on within the church so that people are connected with one another and people are being built up in their faith. And all of that is stuff that we're working on as a, as a newer church, just trying to get these systems in place to make sure that you're well-supported because we don't want you to be tricked. And these teachers worm their way into homes and uh, they don't need a lot of help nowadays. They've got the internet. It's easy. It's so easy for a false teacher to appeal to a Christian subculture and just get right in your home, right through your, your monitor. And so we need to be wise. Verse 8 goes like this. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They're men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. He's saying, here's the issue. These individuals, like the ones in the Old Testament who, who rejected Moses as their leader and the words coming from God himself, he said, just like them, they're opposing truth. That's the real issue. The, the terrible times are marked by a season where people will not put up with sound truth. And they will oppose it. And they will push back against it. And he's saying, that's what's happening here. And that's what I think still happens today. I think False teaching is very much a live issue that we need to be concerned with. But he says, look, verse 9, you don't have to be too concerned because they will not get very far, as is the case of those men. Their folly will be clear to everyone. He's basically saying truth will find them out. And that's one of the reasons why I don't, part of, part of my ministry, I don't respond to a lot of the fads. I don't respond to a lot of the issues that kind of crop up and people go, oh, what should we be thinking about this? I don't do that because most of them, in my experience, have a very short shelf life. That an issue comes up and everyone kind of gets all riled up about it and everyone posts blog articles and different things and most of that stuff just kind of fades away within a work week. And so I don't bother with that, just like he's saying, don't worry too much about it. They will not get very far because their folly will be clear to everyone. So what are some of the applications for us today? As we look at this story here, this passage here from 2 Timothy, what are some of the things that we need to recognize? One of the things that we have to get our hearts around is this. There is a temptation to view the Bible and the truth contained there as an old school message that doesn't apply to us. And there's a temptation in Christian subculture to say, the Bible gets us started, and it's, it points us in a direction. But the beauty that the Bible is aiming at, we, we got to get beyond some of these old school, archaic, and outmoded things. The Bible starts us off in that direction, but really, can we look to an ancient text to tell us how to live our lives today? 
And that temptation is very real in our culture right now. And here's what I'm noticing, that when you reject the truth, you actually reject beauty. When we look at the Bible, some of the things in there are hard. They're hard to to grapple with. They're hard to understand. They're hard to apply. But the thing that discipleship is all about, those of you that have been doing this for a while, we hear what God says, and what do we do? Even when we don't fully agree with it, we want to obey. And we go, huh, could that really be what God wants me to do? Well, I'm going to try that out. And what do we find? That's way better than anything I could have ever imagined or dreamed up. That to follow God's desire for my life is an improvement. But when we think that there's a better way than what the Bible presents, because the Bible is oppressive or archaic, what we really do is we move away from beauty itself. And what I see here when it's describing this characteristic of the times, I see this going on. Those who think that they're moving beyond the Bible to something beautiful actually are doing the exact opposite. That it's not becoming more beautiful. But when you lose grasp of what God wants you to do, you're moving away from him. And you're revealing a selfishness that thinks you know better than God. And then it begins to cascade into this ugly awful list of 18 things that we see here on the front end. So we need to be careful about how we approach the Bible. We need to be people who hold to the Bible in these troubling times. And we need to be aware that false teaching is still very prevalent today. So as a church, we have to be committed to holding up the truth and making sure that truth is clear. And that's why we're doing a series like this. We want you to know what the Bible is, what it says, and how to relate to it. So how do we prioritize the word? That's what we're going to see in verses 10 to 17. How do we become people who love and cherish this book? And the first thing that Paul says is, find a living example. Find somebody else who actually loves and obeys the word. For Timothy, it's Paul. Look at verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, Love, endurance. He's saying to this younger man, he's saying, here's what you need to hold firmly to this word of truth. Look at my life. You're well aware of it. You've, been, you've done ministry with me. You've traveled with me. You've watched me do everything that I do. You, you, I'm, I'm your living example of somebody who loves and cherishes the truth, and you've seen that in real time. That's what we need. We need living examples of people who love the Bible and are living their lives in accordance to it to the best of their ability. And we need to be able to look at them and evaluate and go, is this the right way? We need that. I remember being asked who was the most influential Christian in my life. And I was tempted to think of Bible teachers and people that I've learned from. But the real answer for me is my dad. And he's sitting here today. Pops is, he, he, he's a tree farmer. He works his butt off. He's you know, worked himself to the point of breaking his back twice now. He's having surgery again in January. He's just this ordinary dude who loves God and loves his family and loves the word and has lived in front of me with this consistency and integrity. And so I look at him and I go, that's what I need. I need more people like him in my life, living examples who can remind me of the faithfulness of God. I was talking to John. We haven't seen John in a bit because he's had a lot of other things going on in life, but he was telling me about his mom that passed away. And his mom had an influence because of her faithfulness to Christ. She's a living example of somebody who loves the word, and so neighbors are becoming Christians. 
because we can preach in an auditorium like this and hope that people show up and hear the message and place their faith in Christ. But we can also march out of here and live in a beautiful and compelling way where we say we are living out the truth of the word and then our faith becomes very plausible. People see us living out the beauty of what it looks like to live in relationship with our maker. And they see that and they go, that's different. There's a lot of different worldviews out there, but the way you live and the faith you have in Christ shows up in the way that you're doing life. We need living examples. So I hope that all of us in here would be thinking through, is there anybody that I could spend time with who loves the word so I could begin to catch some of this? Is there somebody that I could devote some time? I'll pay for their coffee once a week. I'll do something where I can be in contact with a living, breathing individual who loves the word of truth because I want to grow in that as well. And if you're a mature believer, I want to encourage you to open up your schedule. There are a lot of people in our church family who could desperately use this. And if we would say every week or every other week, we're just going to have this standing meeting time so that lives can be opened and people can see the beauty of what it looks like to love the word in real time. The ordinary stuff of life. Hanging with families, having meals, doing life, and do that very strategically. Please do find people who are living examples who love the truth. And here's one of the, here's one of the proofs that you're going to see in a person's life. If they love the word, they will be willing to suffer for it. Look at verse 11. You know about my persecutions, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. He's saying, you not only watched my life, you saw how I was willing to suffer for the sake of truth. You saw the things that I went through, the difficulties that I endured for the sake of the gospel. And that then becomes further evidence of the reliability of that truth itself. If you're willing to suffer for something, it's real isn't it? And I think a lot of Christians have this false imagination that if you follow God, it's just going to be very, very easy. When you're following God and seeking after his truth, you will experience suffering. In fact, look at verse 12. This is almost astonishing to me. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Doesn't that feel breathtaking? I mean, I almost want to say, come on, dude, you just, you didn't know about Northern Illinois in 2019. It's so easy here. Like, can you really say that? Does God have integrity by allowing that in his word? You really think that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted? Uh, do, do we experience a lot of persecution? Is that right then? But here's, here's, what, here's what's really going on. If you follow truth, it puts you out of step with the world. That's exactly what Jesus told his disciples. Look with me at John chapter 15. We'll put it up on the screen. Jesus tells his disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world. I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Jesus is saying, if you're with me, if you follow me, do not be surprised. In fact, expect for this to happen. They hated me. They're going to hate you too. Why? Why will the world hate us? Because if we hold firmly to truth, it puts us out of step with society. There are certain things that we maintain, and it's unpopular. And when people hear us take a stand for that, they go, 
I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can side with that. I remember, let me just illustrate this briefly. We did a newcomer's lunch uh, about a year, I don't know how long ago it was, but it was pretty early on in our existence. And we did a newcomer's lunch and we just said, okay, guys, ask any questions that you have. We'll write down the questions and we'll answer them one at a time. And some, some different things came up and people were there and I had to stand in front of the, the group of people, it was about 50, and I had to stand in front of them and say, okay, you're concerned about this thing and here's what I think the Bible actually says. And I think it does say this. And I have, I've read it, I've read it a, you know, a few times, and I can't find my way around it. And so I believe this. And so about five-ish people said, okay, if that's how you feel about it, we won't come here. So here's, here's the, the point. If you want to be pragmatic, if you want to grow a church, if you want to grow the amount of people who will listen, you, you modify the message. You could have, I could have said, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'll look back into it. I'll make sure that, I, that I'm reading this thing right. You know, maybe we'll just kind of omit this part during church services. We won't really deal with it. But if you hold firmly to the word, word of truth, there are going to be people who hear that and they go, then I don't like you. In fact, I hate you. If you're going to hold to what God says in his word, and I'm not saying we have to be jerks about it. We should be winsome and gracious and kind and patient with people. But even still, people are going to hear, if you're committed to truth, they're going to hear that and they're going to say, then I can't be with you. I hate you. And we have to be the kind of place that says, it's worth it. We've counted the cost. We could be popular. We could make it easy. We could tell people what they want to hear. Or we can believe that God has spoken and we're going to obey him. That's the kind of church that I want to be, a place like that where truth is cherished. It goes on to talk about in verse 13, the evildoers and imposters, they'll go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's the unfortunate part about false teaching. It's actually messing with the people who are communicating it. It becomes a blind spot that they're, that they're unaware of and they themselves are deceived. Look at verse 14. But as for you, as for you, Timothy, as for you, church in McChesney Park, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it. Continue in this way of faith. You need to hold firmly to what you've learned because you know the people that have taught it to you. You know the character of their lives. You know the things that they cherish. For Timothy, he had Paul, but he also had a believing mother and a believing grandmother. They're listed in another place. And he's saying, you know this. Verse 15, you know from infancy these holy scriptures. People brought you up and you were hearing the word of God. And you know the way of their life and the way of Paul's life. You know these things. And he's saying, man, this is such a significant thing. We, if you're a parent in here, I hope that we could say this about your parenting, that you are raising your children to know the Holy Scriptures, that you've kind of built in habits and patterns in your life so that your children will grow up with an, with an awareness of the things of God because you've read Bible stories to them and you've communicated the Bible with them. But he's saying, you know these things. You know these people. You've, you've examined them and you've found them to be faithful and true. So believe and hold on to the Bible. Now he's going to turn his attention, not just to living examples, but to the nature of the Bible itself. You can hold firmly to the word of truth because the Bible really is an incredible book. Look at this. Verse 15. You've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. The Bible gives you the ability to see the beauty of Christ. This is the book 
that opens up your eyes to the beauty of Christ so that you can place your faith in him for salvation. This book is a book of salvation. It's a book of how God has rescued and redeemed people like me who run away from him and reject him and push him away. And and even in my own discipleship story, there are all kinds of hiccups and backslides and all of this. And he gives us the story of his pursuit that he is after us and in his son, he is saving us. The Bible gives us a picture of Jesus Christ crucified and risen for our salvation. The Bible is the place where we can go to see the beauty of Christ. The Bible can be divided up in a variety of different ways, but I want to share this with you. I'll give credit to Alistair Begg. I think a lot of people have said it in different ways, but, but the Bible and its divisions help us to, to appreciate who Christ is. The Old Testament gives us Jesus predicted. You read the Old Testament stories, David and Goliath, Um, Daniel in the lion's den, all the Old Testament, it's predicting that there's one coming who's going to defeat the giant. There's one coming who's going to shut the mouth of the lions. There's one coming who's going to be victorious. The Old Testament gives us Jesus predicted. The Gospels, the four different accounts of the life and ministry of Christ, they give us Jesus revealed. They explain him. They explain his, his life. They reveal to us what it was like when he was walking on the earth. The book of Acts gives us Jesus preached. A bunch of people saw him, did life with him, and now they begin to proclaim to as many people as possible, Jesus is alive. Place your faith in him for salvation. The letters in the New Testament called the epistles, they are Jesus explained. People just keep writing like what we're looking at this morning. Paul writes to Timothy and he's saying, you need to understand this. These things help you to appreciate Christ. And then finally, the last book of the Bible is Jesus expected. He's coming back, fam. He's coming back, and we need to be people who are ready for that. So it's all about him. It's all about him. Whenever we read the Bible, we should be looking for him. The Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, he put it like this. He said, just as there are roads in every hamlet and village in London that lead, in Europe that lead you to London, in the same way, every time you get into the Bible, there is a path that leads you to Christ. There's a way that you can read this, and you can find your way to Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. That's what we need to do. We need to read this thing and believe this thing because it helps us to know our Savior. So the Bible is incredible in that regard. It's incredible because it's a product of God's own invention. Verse 16 puts it like this. All Scripture is God-breathed. So we've got a book made up of 66 different books, but we find out that God somehow coordinated this whole effort so that everything that's in our Bible is inspired by him. He, he breathed it out. It's his book. So when you read or hear it, you're reading or hearing his own words. And obviously they take on the characteristics of their authors, but it's his book. It's his word. And so we want to be people who listen to it. It's the authority. If he speaks, I want to listen. If God were to show up today and you heard his booming voice and he said, guys, here's what you need to be doing. We'd all march out of here staggered by that. And we'd go, okay, God spoke to us. But doesn't he do that every single time? If you want to hear God's voice, this is John Piper. He said, if you want to hear God's voice, read your Bible out loud. He has spoken to us in his word. So we need to listen to it. All scripture is God breathed. It's useful. Look at 16. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. This thing has become the instrument of my personal ministry. There's a lot of different things that we could be doing as a church, and I've just decided, let's just make it about this. This will accomplish what we want to accomplish. There's a lot of other things we can do, but this will accomplish what God intends to accomplish. It's useful. 
This thing accomplishes things that I can't do. And so it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And finally, it's sufficient. Look at verse 17. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to know what you need to be godly, God tells us here, you have it. It's sitting in your lap. If you want to know how to live a life of faith in the Son of God, you're not under-resourced. You don't have to attend another seminar or get some kind of special training. God says, this thing is sufficient for you to do everything that I've called you to do, all these good works that I've prepared for you. This book is sufficient. I think there are a lot of implications. I'm going to invite the band to come up. I think there's a lot of things that, as a church, if we really believe the scriptures are God's own word, it it should show up in the way that we organize our church, in the way that we handle the Bible on a Sunday morning, and the things that we encourage you guys to do. So let me encourage you in this way. Expect troubling times. We live in a season where truth is easily rejected. We need to be the place where truth is maintained and held on to. You should commit yourself to the word with a posture of obedience. If God says it, even if it doesn't make sense, obey him and trust that he will reveal more along the way. And I would encourage you with the turn of the new year to try to get into some kind of habit of reading for yourself. Do a personal devotion. Do a little booklet that just gives you a scripture and a reading. Do some kind of reading plan. If you want help with that, email me and I'd be happy to have a discussion with you. And then find a church like this. Find a place where week by week, the word is opened and explained. Because this is the power. This is the thing that changes our lives. And if you ever have to move, make that at the top of your moving list. Not not your dream home, make it your dream church. Say, I want to be at a place with a bunch of other sinners who love and cherish my Savior. And I want to be at a place that opens up the Bible and listens to what is said there. Always be a part of the local church. Let me pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help each of us in here. Um, I'm sure in here there are people who are skeptical about the Bible and skeptical about how useful it is or truthful it is. And so, Lord, we, we just pray that you would use, by your spirit, God, that you would use this time to help us reconsider. And I pray, Lord, um, as I have for a long time, that, that I would have the privilege of leading a community of faith that really does cherish your word and wants other people to know what it says and wants other people to be able to live by faith in the Son of God. We're grateful for the way that the Bible reveals our Savior the treasure that he is, the beauty that he is. Help us at least, God, to trust in him, place our faith in him, and experience salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.